If you're new, welcome. Uh, if not, we are continuing through our series called The Big 12. And so we um, are looking at 12 uh, characters in the Old Testament. And so we're looking at their stories, their example, and how we see Christ. And it's been fascinating, I hope. Um, at least for me, I know it's been fascinating. Because we look at these characters, and they're so different from us, right, in so many ways. Uh, I mean, no modern technology. Um, they have, you know, most of them still operate underneath a sacrificial system. So they had to go and kill things, you know. And so just very different from us in so many ways. But yet, but yet I find myself in, in almost every one of their stories, Yet I see my own story intermixing with theirs. And so I hope that as we are hearing their stories, that, that we're learning more about ourselves, that we're actually getting to see our lives and our stories and our struggles and our successes intermixed in these ancient stories. I hope also that we're learning more about our, our family. Uh, one of the amazing things is that we believe that when we are bonded together in Christ, that, that the Old Testament is our family heritage. It's the story, not just about ancient people, but it's the story about our family. Um, but primarily, primarily, I hope that as we're learning this, as we're studying these characters, that we're getting to see Jesus. Jesus, in uh, Luke 24, he talks about that the entire Bible, the entire Old Testament, talks about him. And all of it, all of it is fulfilled in him. And so as we go throughout these characters, they are intended to foreshadow. They're intended to be types of the greater one to come, Jesus. And so hopefully we're getting to see a fuller picture of who Jesus is and what it is that he has done for us uh, on his death on the cross and, and his resurrection from the, from the grave. So today we are going to be talking about Jonah. So Jonah is uh, is the... Uh, the character. Um, Jonah's name actually means dove, right? Which is a little ironic because you start off the story and, and what were doves originally intended for uh, in the ancient world is that they were messengers, right? You you would have a dove. I mean, they didn't have text messaging. And so you would have your dove kind of be your text message, right? You would put it a, a message in it. You would put it in its foot, and then you would send it off to deliver the message, right? And doves are usually pretty good. You know, every once in a while, one would get wayward, but usually they delivered the message, right? And so that's why they use them. And so Jonah is supposed to be a messenger, right? But the very first thing that we see in Jonah's story is that though his name means messenger, he's anything but one. And so God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, to this ancient city that was uh, an enemy of Israel. And he tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and call out against its evil. Jonah heard the word of the Lord. Jonah knew what God wanted. Jonah instead went the opposite direction. And he picked up his robes and he went down, down to Joppa. And he got on a ship to Tarshish, which is 1,500 miles the opposite direction. And in the ancient world, there's not that much that was known. And so literally, he went to the exact opposite side of the world from where God had called him. And so he runs on this ship, seeking to flee the presence of the Lord. But as he's on the ship, God appoints a storm that comes and it starts to sway the ship so bad that it seems like it's going to fall apart, that it's going to be destroyed. It's in the midst of the storm that Jonah goes once more down into the innermost part of the ship and he begins to go to sleep. He, Jonah begins to apathetically go to sleep while the rest of the boat and all the sailors are crying out to their gods. They're crying out there. Then after nothing happens, no one answers, they begin to throw the cargo overboard. They're saying, we just got to lighten the load. So they start throwing things overboard, hoping that this is going to allow them to survive. 
It's almost like the perfect storm. Waves, winds, the, the, the sea is, is, uh, is massive. And so Jonah is down sleeping through this. And the captain comes down to Jonah and he says, You sleeper, wake up. Cry out to your God that he might save us. Jonah comes and, and they're saying, Well, we need to figure out what's going on because this storm isn't going away. Everything we've tried has failed. And so who is... Who's caused this storm? There's somebody, surely the gods are angry at us because this doesn't seem natural. And so they cast lots to figure out who it is that has caused the storm. And sure enough, the lot falls on Jonah, right? And, and they turn to Jonah and say, hey, who are you again? What, uh, what, where are you from? What's your occupation? And, and Jonah turns and he says, I'm from Israel, right? And he, he says that I, uh, I serve the Lord of heaven, the creator of the, of the dry land and the sea. And it says that in that moment that they were terrified because they remembered that Jonah had told them that he was running away from the Lord. And so they asked Jonah, what is it that we have to do? What must we do to, to be saved from this storm? And Jonah tells him, you got to throw me overboard. God's not going to relent. God's not going to let you go unless you throw me overboard. But the, the sailors are actually pretty upworthy guys. They, uh, they're actually pretty, pretty full of integrity. And they say, no, we're going to get you out of this. We refuse to throw you overboard. And so they row and they row and they row. But when you're up against a match with God, it doesn't go too well. And so despite all their best efforts, they're stuck. And finally, they cry out to God and they say, please forgive us. Do not hold this man's innocent blood on us. And they throw Jonah overboard into the raging sea. It's at this moment after they've thrown Jonah overboard that the sea calms. And it says that the fear of God comes in and because they were afraid, they began to make sacrifices to the God of Israel and they began to make vows to him of commitment. Jonah, thinking that this is the moment of his sure death, is then swallowed up by a great fish that God has appoint, appointed. It's in the belly of the fish that Jonah finally comes to somewhat of his senses as he cries out in faith, saying that God is the only one that can deliver him. But it's interesting, even in Jonah's prayer, Jonah is a very theologically astute uh, prophet. He knows God, he knows his character, he knows what he's like, and he can utter all the words but even in the midst of Jonah's prayer of faith, there still is spiritual pride. There still is not a confession, not a, a repentance in his heart. But he cries out for God's deliverance. He prays and asks that God would save him, and he acknowledges that God will save him. And that's exactly what God does. Three days and three nights later, the fish spits up Jonah on dry land. Surely looking white from stomach acid and being disgusting, the word of the Lord comes once more to Jonah saying, let's try this one again. I am now calling you to go to Nineveh and tell them the message that I give into your mouth. Jonah takes up a different tune at this time and he says, okay. And so he goes to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh and he obeys the word of the Lord. He calls out to Nineveh. He says, in 40 days, this city will be overthrown. And surprisingly, the city actually listens. The king, all the way down to the lowest servant, repents. They cry out because of their sin. And it says that the king instituted a day of fasting and of mourning. 
where they put on sackcloth and ashes and they refused to eat and they repented of their evil. It's now that God sees and he forgives. Jonah is not happy at all at this occurrence. Jonah is pretty frustrated, actually. And this is what Jonah says in his prayer to God. He says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is, that, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I don't think there's ever been a prophet that's more disappointed at somebody heeding their message. And so Jonah is frustrated that they are heeding. He says, listen, it's better that I die. Just go ahead and kill me. And God says, do you have any right to be angry, Jonah? It's at this that Jonah goes up on a mountain overseeing the city. He builds a booth and God appoints this plant that grows up and provides shade for Jonah's head. And it says that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plan. Apparently it was really hot and he really wanted some shade. And so he is exceedingly glad because of the plant. And he rejoices in God's provision of the plant. It's the next day that he wakes up thinking that the plant will be there. And God had appointed a worm that comes and chews and eats up the plant. Jonah becomes exceedingly frustrated and angry. And God turns and says, do you have any right to be angry? Jonah says, yes, I have right. I have enough right to die. I should just die right now. You've taken this plant from me. It's in this that God turns. The Lord says to Jonah, he says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And so the book of Jonah ends with God giving the last word, with us not seeing exactly what Jonah responded to or where Jonah exactly was at. But God calls out and demonstrates his mercy. So what I want us to do um, for the remainder of our time is we, we want to look at the example of Jonah. Particularly, I want us to look at, um, at two things. Um, when you look at Jonah, Jonah is pretty short. It's 48 verses. It breaks into really two sections, chapters 1 and 2 uh, and chapters 3 and 4, right? So those two, 1 through 2 and 3 and 4, um, are really two parts. And they illustrate what it means for us to run away from God. And so Jonah, Jonah's life shows us what it means to run away from God in what's called irreligion and what it means to run away from God in what's called, what we'll say, religion. Okay, so I'm using irreligion as meaning anti-religion, right? Which means that I know what is said, but I refuse to obey. And we see that this spectrum goes from those that are would say, that I'm an atheist, I'm agnostic, I don't believe um, in any kind of God. That This would define it, that when, the, when they know what God says, they say, forget it, I want nothing to do with it, and I'm going to go my own way. It's when you know what you're doing is sin, but you put in your headphones, turn up the music, and drive the other way as far and as fast as you can. Now, I'm using religion to mean when you think that your moral behavior, your goodness, your discipline is what saves you. That because you follow all the rules and you do what God tells you, 
that you think that that has earned your salvation, that you have manipulated, controlled God, and that you have rights to tell God and to do with God what you want. Jonah illustrates running away from God in both of these ways. And so the first one I want to look at is, how, how does Jonah illustrate running away from God through irreligion? Uh, I think that that one's pretty easy, right? We see that the very first verse is that Jonah hears the word of the Lord. He knows that God is speaking to him, and what does he do? He says, great, I've heard what you have to say, and I'm not doing it. I'm going the other way. And it's just complete rebellion. And so one of the things we learn about, about the irreligious heart is that it, sin is simply saying no to whatever God is telling you to do. Right? We see that sin is simply saying no to whatever God has told you to do. Now, we kind of laugh about Jonah, and we, we maybe put him in a bad picture. How could Jonah do this? How could he be so rebellious? But I think we need to give Jonah a little bit of a break. Because Jonah, when we learn in 1 Kings 14, Jonah's actually a pretty righteous guy. He actually does seek the Lord. God used him to speak in the life of Israel and to help guide the nation. This, this act of disobedience isn't normal life for Jonah. There are plenty of other areas in which Jonah was following the Lord, but yet there is this one area that he wouldn't. There is this one area in Jonah's life that he wasn't, and God put his finger on it. God knew the exact area in which he was worshiping something else, in which he wasn't honoring the Lord, in which he wasn't submitting. So God called that to the forefront. He brought it to the surface, something that Jonah might not have seen that was hidden because he was contained in his comfortable wall of Israel. And God called him. He says, I want you to go and I want you to preach to Nineveh. I want you to preach to the Assyrians, the ones who are your arch enemies. Now we need to realize how evil Assyria was, right? Assyria in ancient literature is they would fillet people while they were alive. They would take people's skulls and they would make monuments of them. They would impale people. And this was likely what they would have done to people that Jonah knew. Think of World War II, America and Germany. Someone, God calls someone from America to go into Auschwitz, or even calls a Jew to go in there and to preach to them repentance. Now, this isn't a, a very exciting opportunity for Jonah, as you can imagine, because it probably seems like a lose-lose situation from the surface, right? He's, he could go, and he could preach to them. And what happens if they don't receive his message? He could die, right? Or option two, he goes, he preaches repentance to them, and the people that he hates the most, the people that are the enemies of his people, of Israel, repent and don't get the justice at the timeline that he wants. And so his sense of nationalism, his pride, his control is surfaced for what it is. There was one thing that Jonah worshipped more than the Lord. It was his sense of justice, his sense of control. It was his pride. And God brought that to the surface. It doesn't matter how much we obey if we refuse to obey the Lord completely. Lordship means that he is Lord of all, not Lord of some of our life. And we see this with Jonah is that there were lots of ways in which Jonah would say, I'm obeying, I'm doing good, I'm doing this. But he refused to submit and to honor Christ's lordship in all areas of, her, of his life. And don't we, don't we do the exact same thing? Right? Aren't we exactly like that? 
well, God, I go to church on Sundays and, you know, I give and I do all these things, but I know that you're really calling this habit that I'm addicted to, to be let go of. I know that you're, you're really wanting to set me free of this, but you see, I really need this. I'm, what's really Lord in my life is this. What really controls and dictates and leads me is this and not you. And so, you know, I hear all these other things, but I'm just going to kind of run away from you on this. I'm going to say no, but I'll keep doing all these other things thinking it's okay. We do the same thing. Disobedience is simply saying no to God. One of the other things that we see in, in Jonah's story is that your disobedience, your sin doesn't just affect you but it affects everyone around you, right? And this is, this is exactly what we like to believe. And we see this in Jonah's story. Jonah didn't think. He thought, you know, this is a personal matter. God spoke to me personally. Nobody else is really involved, you know, so I'm just going to leave and run away. Nobody else has anything to do with this. But what do we see? Jonah's disobedience had huge ramifications for people that didn't even know God, for the sailors that were right next and stuck with him in the boat. And the, one of the ironies of Jonah is that the prophet, the man of God, is seen in, in, in comparison to the pagan sailors to not have the same integrity, not have the same compassion, or the same care. The sailors are more concerned about Jonah's life than Jonah is about their life. And Jonah refuses to listen to the Lord. And because his disobedience, it brought ramifications and it put at risk others' lives around him. We rub off on people around us i'm for most of you know i'm newly newly married and so one of the things that i see more and more especially as we get into our relationship is how much we affect one another early on in our relationship one of the things that emily does all the time is she rolls her eyes so one of the things that like when she just is like she'll laugh or she'll do something and she'll roll her eyes well not too too much longer probably six months eight months all of a sudden call starts calling me out he's like you just rolled your eyes and I'm like, no, I didn't. I didn't roll my eyes. But, it, but she started to rub off, you know, like her expression started to rub off, you know. And, but, but that simple illustration is so true because we rub off on each other. And to deny that is to be, is to be ignorant or to be arrogant. You rub off on other people. What you put in your life rubs off on you. We are not these individualistic superheroes in a bubble that we can do whatever we want and we're invincible and nothing else will affect us. You can't watch anything that you want. You can't listen to anything you want and act like it doesn't impact you. It does. It will begin to steer what you think about and how you operate. And your refusal to listen and obey the Lord has massive ramifications on everybody around you, especially those that don't know Christ. Because they are desperately longing for someone to show them an image of what Christ looks like. What is his love? What is his compassion? How does his spirit change us? And when we tell God no, we're not sensitive to listening to what he would say to them through us. We're communicating that God isn't good. We're, we're telling the world lies about God, right? Jonah was saying that God wasn't good enough, that God wasn't in control, that he did, wasn't worthy of trust. All of these things and it was in spite of Jonah, not because of him, that the sailors began to worship God. It was because of God's sovereign goodness and mercy that they came to know him. Our disobedience has massive ramifications for everybody around us. When we say no to God, we're saying no to how God would use us in other people's lives. We have, to, we have to realize this because one of the greatest lies when we disobey God is that it only affects me. 
is that it's only going to impact me. And once we realize how interconnected everything is and how much our obedience to the Lord is the lifeline through which he uses us, through which his grace and his mercy is poured in and through our lives, then we will realize how important, how vital putting God first is, that really it is the source through which everything else comes. That's what Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added into you. Our disobedience affects everyone else. The next thing that we see is that our sin, your sin will lead you to places that you couldn't imagine. One of the things that we, we learn about those that rebel against God is that your, your sin, our sin, will take you to places that you never could have imagined. I'm sure that being in the belly of a well was probably a low point for Jonah. Can you imagine? And it's, it's interesting because the book of Jonah actually has this idea in it, this downward spiral of sin. Literally, there's three times that it uses the word down. That Jonah first hears the word of the Lord and he rebels and he goes down to Joppa. And then the next thing is God sends this storm to get Jonah's attention, to, to help him to see that he's rebelling. That it's, the storm is God's way to flush out his sin. And Jonah goes, instead of realizing that, he goes down once more into the inner parts of the ship seeking to escape God. And the last thing is when he's thrown overboard, it talks about that he goes down into Sheol, right? Into the, this bottomless pit through the, through the fish that swallows him. And the book is portraying this downward spiral that happens when we sin, right? As a, a fish all the time and being in a kayak, you know, going down to Fort Lauderdale, going places where you're offshore, you can get caught in a current really quickly. And all of a sudden, you were just half a mile out, and now you're two and a half miles out. And the way back is much harder, and you're much further than you thought you would be. Up in Kansas City, we have snow all the time. We don't get it down here, really. But one of our favorite things to do is that we, we, uh, we would get, sometimes we get it, very infrequently, though. But, uh, but sometimes we would grab a, uh, you know, you'd get a snowball, right? And one of our favorite things is we'd have hills, and so we would get the snowball, and we would start to roll it down the hill, right? And by the end, you have the bottom of a snowman, you know, and you're ready to go. Why? Because it picks up steam, and it keeps going and the, the longer and the further it goes, the, the bigger it is. Man, and this is such the truth with sin. Is that Jonah, before he realizes it, one act of disobeying God, and he finds himself in the, in the bottom of a fish. And can I tell you, this is such the truth in my life too. I remember being in high school, sitting in a juvie cell, because I decided that my anger was more important than showing mercy and forgiveness. Wondering, how in the world did I get here? Crushing my parents' heart. I remember being 18 and struggling with pornography and being addicted so that I was looking at it almost every day, wondering how did I get here? How did I get a, in a place in which I am enslaved? I'm no longer, I no longer feel like I have a choice in which I am consumed in this. Being in relationships that I should never have been in, being in places that I should never have gone, simply because it started with one act of saying no. One moment of me giving over to my sense of what I wanted. Every act of sin, if it's given the ability to, will take the furthest leap it can. Every single act, Augustine talked about that, that one act of sin will dethrone God if it's, let, if it's given the opportunity to. Sin, if left unchecked, will lead you to places that you never could have imagined. And you will 
stand there and ask, how did I get here? Where am I at? And it starts by saying no to what God has called you to. We run away from God. And when we say no to him, it will lead us further and further away. One of the other things we see is that there's always an escape route for our disobedience. Right? Jonah was looking for a way to get away from God. Right? He was hunting for it. He was like, I don't want to go and listen to the Lord. I'm not going to Nineveh. And so where and how can I get away? And sure enough, there was a ship ready to take him where he wanted to go. Right? And, and so many times in our life, we are ready to disobey the Lord and we are looking for a way. We are looking for a way and we think, oh, well, the situation just fit right. So it's got to be what God wants me to do. Or I just have a peace in my heart. And so surely God wants me to enter in this relationship or God wants me to do this act because, of course, it, that's what's in my heart. And what we see is that there's, we don't think, do you think that there's an enemy that is out preparing a ship ready to help you disobey God? We believe as Christians that we have a sinful nature, but we also believe that there's an enemy that is planning our destruction. He wants to see us disobey, and he wants to see us be destroyed. And there's always going to be something ready to take you in the opposite way of what God wants you to go. So we've, we've talked and we've seen a little bit about what the consequences are of, of running away from God, of saying no, of disobeying God, that sin will take you where you never could have imagined. That sin is simply saying no to what God has called us to. And sin impacts everybody around us. So we see all of that in Jonah 1 and 2. Now, I want us to look at Jonah's chapter 3 and 4, where it illustrates what it means to still run away from God, but to run away from God in a religious way, Right? And so what that means, it means that Jonah obeys God, and we see it, don't we? Jonah gets spit up on dry land, and he's like, we're going to try this one again. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and instead of running away, Jonah probably is wise at this point and says, I don't want to go through that ordeal again, so I'm just going to obey this time. And so he goes and he does what God calls him to do, but it's pretty evident that Jonah really doesn't do what God calls him to do. In one sense, he obeys, but in the very truest, deepest sense, he rebels. Religion, and, and what we see here is we see that religion is thinking that obedience is something merely external rather than something internal. And this is what marks religion, right? This is what, and Jesus says it, Jesus talks about religion with the Pharisees, is he says that they look all clean like a whitewashed tomb on the outside, they look nice and presentable. They look like they go to, you know, they are faithful in attendance. They give. They do all the right things. They follow the rules. But inside, they're full of dead man's bones. They're full of wickedness and pride and selfishness and lust and greed. And it's because religion thrives off of simply seeing obedience as a standard that we can meet rather than understanding that it's a motive of the heart that cries out to God. Jesus talks about this all throughout. You can't read Jesus without him talking about that the kingdom of God is more about something inward that then springs itself to something external. That obedience to God is the motives of our heart that then manifests itself in outward actions. We saw it. Jonah didn't really desire what God desired. It's the parable of the prodigal son. The older son who stays at home his whole life but his heart is still running away from the Father. 
He still knows what God wants, what the Father wants, but instead he uses it because he wants to get control. So we see that obedience is a matter of the heart and not simply merely of externals. The other thing that religion is marked by that we see here is religion is marked by the inability to see your own sin. Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches, but yet he has all these misplaced priorities, right? I mean, he, a plant grows up and he is like, he's exceedingly glad about a plant that gave him shade, but yet there's no exceeding gladness about a city that repented, right? He cares more about a plant that is here today and gone tomorrow than he cares about a nation of people that know, have no knowledge of who God is. He shows no mercy. Jonah just disobeyed God, right? He just did it literally like the day before. And God showed him mercy and forgiveness. Yet when he goes to preach mercy and forgiveness to the Ninevites, he's not able to recall the mercy and forgiveness that he himself was shown. And this is the, this is the height of what religion does is that we are so captivated by our sense of control and by our pride that literally we have a log within our own eye, but yet we are constantly fixed on the speck in our brothers. And this is the way that we run away from God. We run away from God because we make God into somebody that we can control. We make God into someone that we can manipulate, that we can appease, that we have rights with, and therefore we will only go so far and then we'll stop. It's Jonah's inability to see his own sin that, that puts him the other, that flows forth the other two things. One of which Jonah and religion is marked by anger and his emotional instability, right? You see it. Jonah's emotions are everywhere, right? I mean, they're constantly up and down. Like he's exceedingly glad because it's something that really doesn't matter at all, right? And then he's like exceedingly frustrated and angry at God for things that really do matter. Why? Why is Jonah emotionally unstable? Why is he so angry? The reason he's so angry is because religion thrives off of the ability to control, right? Is it when you're approaching God in a religious mindset, you're doing it because you want to control things. That's why people that, and when we get into religious mindsets, we do it on things and standards that we can meet, right? Well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I've been faithful to these things and we make obedience this external thing. We want to totally forget all the brokenness and all the inward sin that we aren't able to do. And it's because we want to control, and it's because Jonah wanted to control that he finds himself at odds with God, right? Jonah wanted to control his world. He wanted to control his life. And ultimately, he wanted his sense of justice to be had. God, don't you see the Ninevites, they deserve justice, what they've done. They deserve your wrath. And this is what drove Jonah. But God was set to give them mercy. And it's because Jonah had a sense of control, and it wasn't being met what jonah wanted wasn't happening but yet what god was wanting did and jonah continued to get frustrated and continued to get angry ultimately what we see is that jonah really didn't see god as lord of all in his life that he saw him lord of something and when the something that he wasn't lord of got brought up jonah got angry jonah got angry at god because this is what matters more than you. And you're taking what matters to me the most away. Rather than honoring and submitting to him. 
And so we see that religion ultimately is, it's marked by anger and it's marked by emotional instability because we're constantly battling with God for control. We're constantly in a fight with God. The next thing that we see about a religious heart is that it's unable to truly forgive from the heart. Jonah, because of his inability to see his own sin, wasn't able to truly forgive others. And this is, man, this is the truth. When we are pressed, and when you realize Jonah is pressed to the hilt, this is the hardest thing that he can imagine being asked to do. He is pressed between a rock and a hard place, and what he really believes comes out. And so will it with us. When we can forgive when we think that it's, it's trivial or it's minor. But when God puts us between a rock and a hard place and he calls us to forgive in which it seems impossible, what we believe manifests itself. It comes to the surface. And Jonah ultimately believed that his sin wasn't that bad. Jonah really didn't believe that he had sinned that much against God and therefore he wasn't as bad as the Ninevites. They were far worse than him and so therefore he couldn't forgive them. Only, only when we realize the depth of our sin will we understand the greatness of his forgiveness. And only when we understand the greatness of his forgiveness will we be a conduit for that forgiveness to flow out into the lives of others. So we, we see that the religious heart is, is, is marked by externals rather than internals. That it's trying to control and manipulate God. It's marked by anger and emotional instability. There's some good news, right? The first part of the good news is acknowledging that we are all Jonah. Every single one of us. That we all have run away from God. Sometimes it's we hear God's word and we say absolutely not and we refuse. Other times, we say, okay, God, I'll do what you call me to do, but my heart is actually in rebellion against you. Every single one of us is Jonah. It's where the good news starts. Because isn't it amazing to see that even in the midst of Jonah's rebellion, God still used him? <laughs> Man, don't, don't you think like it would have been easier for God to have been like, well, Jonah, you're rebellious, you're obstinate, you're not listening to me, so I'm done with you. I'm just going to... You know, like, I'm going to let the sea take you. But instead, God rescues Jonah. God shows his mercy to Jonah. God condescends and humbles himself. And consistently, he, he talks with Jonah. He urges Jonah. He gives him an illustration, even, to show him. God's patient and long-suffering, and that's such good news for all of us that are Jonas. For all of us that run away from God. That God isn't through with us. That God's not just going to throw us off. That God's going to be patient with us and help us to walk through it. One of the other parts of the good news is that our salvation doesn't doesn't always look like we imagined it. Right? The way that God saves us from ourselves isn't always the way that we imagined. The the big fish in the story that swallows Jonah, we think that that's God's punishment. Actually, in the story, that's God's salvation. The, the fish is actually the way that, that God rescues and saves Jonah from himself. Jonah is going to die in the sea, and God appoints a fish to come and to bring Jonah to the point at which he realizes and cries out to God. 
God uses the fish to then deliver Jonah to the place that he wanted him to be. And I, at least for me, one of the things, uh, a year or two, I was looking at my, uh, my life with the Lord over the past 11 years. And one of the things that I continue to see is that God blew my life up when there was idolatry. Is that God continued to make my life a wreck and to like destroy, you know, like, I mean, I think about my senior year with my mom with cancer and one of my best friends dying, all these things and, and ter- terrible relationships. And you look at that and you're like, man, isn't that like God's judgment? Isn't that God's judgment? But actually that was the means through which God saved and rescued and brought me to the place I needed to be. I mean, I look at years past and all the ways in which God just, God used unconventional ways to bring me back to the path that I needed to be and to help me and humble me and show me his goodness and his grace and his power and his sovereignty. Sometimes the ways that God saves us look very different than we had imagined. And this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus comes in in all three of the Gospels, and he says that he is a greater Jonah. How? We see that Jesus and Jonah are very much alike, right? We see that um, that both of them are sent into a raging storm to save others, that Jesus is, is sent in the storm of God's wrath in order that others might be saved, and that Jonah, too, he is sent in the raging sea that it might be calmed, that the lives of others would be saved. Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights. So too Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. We see that both Jonah and Jesus were called to bring a message of salvation to people that God had called to himself. But there's a big difference between Jonah and Jesus. While Jonah was thrown overboard into the raging sea because of his own sin, because of his own disobedience, Jesus was thrown into the raging sea because of our disobedience and because of our sin. And it's this that brings us comfort and hope. It's because Jesus was thrown into the sea of God's wrath and it became calm that we know that every sea and every storm that we face, God is with us and not against us. That God will never bring condemnation because of our sin and rebellion against him. Isaiah 53, 5 through 6 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of woe shall not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. It is because Jesus sent in the sea of God's wrath that we know that he will never forsake us in the midst of ours. Though we are like Jonah and run away from God, we know that God will never run away from us. And it's in this confidence that we can trust him, that we can obey him, delighting in his law, delighting in his commands, knowing that what he calls us to is good because he is good. Let us pray. Father, thank you.
that though we, like Jonah, run away from you, that you run to us, that you are the faithful one that comes to rescue us by your grace. God, I pray for us. Lord, some of us know right now that we are obstinate and rebelling against God. We know what God has said to us. We know the word that he has given to us, and we are simply saying no because we think and believe a lie that something is more important, that something is more life-giving than you, that we know better, that we need to control. And so, God, I ask for those that know that the Holy Spirit is convicting and moving in their life, God, that you would help them to release, that you would help them to confess, that you would help them and change their belief, God, that they would experience and taste that you are far better and obedience to you is more vital and important that they realize. God, for those that perhaps here don't know you, God, I pray that you would lead them. They know that they've been running away from you. They hear your conviction. I pray that they would give up control over their life and they would surrender to your lordship. I pray for others that, that are externally obeying God, but in their heart, they're rebelling against you filled with pride and selfishness, that they're using these things to have a sense of superiority from above others. I pray that, that the truth would sink in, that we would realize how wicked our hearts really are, but that your grace would be seen as even stronger. We need you, Jesus, and we thank you for your love and for your kindness and goodness to us. Help us to continue to worship you. It's an area we pray, Christ. Amen.